We have been talking about the Sermon on the Mount, obviously, for, for months now, and we're going to be doing it for a few more weeks, at least, until we get to the end. We're right, right pretty much in the smack in the middle of the center of the thing. We're right in the center of chapter 6. It's uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, so we're right in the middle. So we've got a little bit of a ways to go, but it's probably, uh, for my money, the best study that you could do. If, if you could only take three chapters out of the, uh, of, of the uh, 66 books on that desert island, this would probably be not a bad choice right there. It's just the entirety of Jesus' teaching, everything that he was about, condensed down into probably what was an early catechism for the church. And uh, so, it's, you know, we've talked about the fact that he probably didn't say all this at one place, at one time, in this order. It was compiled later of the, the body of his teaching. But it's arranged in such a purposeful structure. And that's something that we have also been taking a look at, the structure of it. And through it all, through this entire teaching and through his entire ministry, through the entire Gospels, through Jesus' life as it's been handed down to us, Jesus is absolutely relentless. He is relentless about never allowing us to rest in old ideas, in old thought patterns, in old behaviors. He's relentless. Or even new ones, for that matter. You know, as soon as you got a new idea... You know, you let a moment go by, and now it's an old idea. The Spirit is always moving, always blowing fresh wind through our lives. If we are really in tune with Spirit, we're moving with that. There's never a time that we just become static, that we become in any way comfortable enough to become complacent. And as soon as we have codified what we think we know about God into some kind of structure with edges that we can hold on to, it's not going to be enough to contain the next experience of our God or the next trauma that we face where we need the presence of God. And so Jesus is absolutely relentless. He's like one of those personal trainers, right? Always pushing one more rep, just one more rep, you know, just one more round, one more this, one more that. Always trying to get you to push beyond what you think you can do to grow to the next level and to prove to yourself that you can that there are more levels out there, that you haven't exhausted yourself. Jesus is like that, always trying to get us to understand. You know? Or it's like me trying to get my teenage son out of bed for school in the morning. All right, you got 45 minutes. All right, you got 30 minutes. All right, I'm pulling the covers off your bed. You know, it's relentless, always trying to get us to move out of where we are. He systematically is leaving no stone unturned. He's systematically tearing down these old ideas that we have, these ideas that have become entrenched in us and now are holding us back. Our thinking, our behavior, layer by layer, Jesus is relentlessly tearing those down. Now here in the Sermon on the Mount, he starts right at the beginning with the Beatitudes, turning on it's our head, the ideas that we had about who is the righteous among us. Jesus is point, pointing to those who are vulnerable, those who are defend, de- dependent, those who are on the margins of life, those who feel that they have no place to turn but God. Those are the people that he is holding up as the emblems of kingdom. They are the blessed ones, which flew in the face of their culture, flies in the face of our culture, and probably every culture in between. 
because we lionize those who are powerful, those who are famous, those who can change things. And Jesus is just doing the opposite. And he's saying, not only that, these characteristics that you're seeing that I'm giving you right here are both the cause and the effect of kingdom on a person's life. To start to move into that kind of vulnerability, to move into that anavim state, is what brings us into kingdom, but it's also the effect of kingdom. Having lived and experienced personally the presence of God, which is what kingdom is all about, that leaves you changed. It can't leave you unchanged. And the way that it leaves you is more aware of your dependence on everything, on God, on God's handiwork in nature, leaves you more vulnerable, willing to be open to the next person in your path, the humility that starts to take shape in you for bumping up against this power greater than yourself and realize there's nothing to fear. These attributes of the Beatitudes are both cause and effect on an individual. And then from there, Jesus goes into salt and light, which is the effect that the individual who is living in kingdom has on the people around him or her, on the community, that they are salt, that they are light. From there, he goes and starts redefining the law. Everything that you thought you know about law in terms of being covered like a fig leaf because you've been following the code of the law. He's now saying that's just the tip of the iceberg. That's just the training wheels on the bike. That's just the ticket in the door. Everything that happens from that point on beyond the law, beyond the first mile, is what actually is what kingdom is all about. And then he's doing the same treatment in Matthew 6, where we are now, on their ideas of righteousness, this culture that he was teaching to the idea of giving alms as, as an emblem of your righteousness, fasting and praying as emblems of your righteousness. But he's going to be talking about this in such a way that we're going to start to understand that there's more to it than just doing these acts of righteousness, especially if we're doing them in with any kind of conflict of interest. Take a look at Matthew 6, starting at verse 2. And I know we've read these before, but coming back to them and seeing how they all fit together. And this is, this is the, the point here. We can tend to see these teachings here in Matthew 6 or these teachings in the entire Sermon on the Mount as being kind of a disconnected collection of sayings. But they all really work tightly together. They're interwoven together. They, they define each other. They amplify each other. And so for the last three Sundays, we've been coming back to these same verses because there's more to talk about in them. And this time, we're going to try to see if we can wrap them up pretty much. I mean, there's more even in the rest of Matthew 6 that's going to relate back here, but we'll get to that when we get to it. But at Matthew 6 too, when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by man. There is the conflict of interest, right? Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. If we move into these acts of righteousness, anything that we do with a conflict of interest, looking at this as either a tax or an investment, something we have to do by law or we're going to get punished, or something if we do, then God is going to return the favor tenfold and we're actually investing in our own increase, our own self-aggrandizement, that's the conflict. And Jesus says, if you enter into this with that attitude, with that mindset, you have your reward in full. At, at six five, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. 
for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. And that word hypocrite, I love it in, in uh, Aramaic, literally it translate, translates to receivers of faces. <laughs> I love that idea of putting on that mask, you know, projecting what you want to project for your own advantage. That's the idea of the hypocrite here. Projecting this righteousness so that they can get an advantage. And Jesus says, you have your reward in full. At verse 16, whenever you fast, don't put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. If you're looking at your insert, you notice that reward in full is in italics. Those are my italics. But hear that refrain, almost like like poetry, at the tag of each one of these lines. They have the reward in full. They have the reward in full. They have the reward in full. Why is he repeating this? Why is he emphasizing this? Well, let's move on to verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So here's the old idea that Jesus is trying to break apart for us, deconstruct. The treasure on earth really is the highest good. Having treasure on earth, having increase on earth in his culture and in ours implicitly, means that God has approved of you. God is blessing you. You are right with God because of all of this increase that has happened to you. And Jesus is now exposing again the conflict of interest that's implicit in that thinking. Why is he so big on exposing conflicts of interest? Because the conflict of interest is what disallows us from even having kingdom presence. It's that mindset of the tax or the investment, the carrot or the stick, right? The thing that's going to keep us from punishment or the thing that's going to give us the reward that brings us out of connection, out of love, out of presence, because it's no longer focusing us on the moment, on where we are and who we're with. By definition, if we're looking at this as a tax or an investment, a way to get ourselves further forward, then our focus is on that outcome. And everything that is with us and everyone who is with us now just becomes means to that end. They no longer have their own value. Only a stepping stone to get us where we want to go. That is the opposite of love. That is the opposite of kingdom. And Jesus needs to be absolutely relentless to help us to break that down. Kingdom is always and ever its own reward, its own end in itself. There is no more there there than a perfect moment experienced in connection with each other in God's presence. And if you really are in that moment, you're not thinking about anything further that needs to be imported into the moment to make it better or to leave it to go to a better moment. It just is, and it is all-inclusive. This is what Jesus is trying to get across. And here's where we can begin to see how all of these sayings are connected. This idea of having your reward in full 
is what a treasure on earth is all about. Being focused on the treasure on earth will give you your reward in full, but it shelves you off. It creates a glass ceiling because these treasures on earth are temporary. They're fleeting. They will never satisfy. As soon as you get the one that you're after, you only want the next one and you end up chasing the horizon or the end of the rainbow. It always is receding from you. You can never, ever get there because it's always fear-based. It's always scarcity-based. This idea of trying to get things in this life. Ara, earth, in Aramaic, really is a zero-sum game if you think about it. And there's only so many resources on this planet, which is a closed system, except for the sunlight we get, I suppose. It's a closed system. The resources are finite. Whatever we take from here has got to come out of somebody else's pocket, somebody else's forest, somebody else's pasture. You know, it's zero sum. Everything is going to always equal that zero. And so any treasure that we extract here on earth is coming out from another or from nature, and it's creating an imbalance. I mean, the second law of thermodynamics, you want to get really geeky about it? Entropy tells us everything goes from order to disorder, but it also tells us that no matter what you clean up over here, you're just making dirtier over here. There's that great um, cartoon I just saw where someone was mowing his lawn and all the, the grass was going over the hedge into the other, his neighbor's yard. Or someone was plowing the street and the, and the snow was going into the street and then the snow plow was plowing it back over on the other side. I mean, that's basically what happens. You clean up your room, you're just making bags that go into the landfill. You clean up the environment over here. You're using energy to do that that is making the environment dirtier over here. I mean, that's just the way it works on Earth. It's zero sum. If our focus is here on earth, do you see the mindset that that creates for you? Do you see the fear base that that creates? How you are always on guard, you are always defensive, you are always looking to get the advantage because if you don't, then someone's going to be taking their advantage out of you, always in competition with everyone around you rather than in connection with everything and everyone around you? Is it any wonder that Jesus is so relentless about hitting us here over and over again at this particular point. We might say, well, why is this so bad? I mean, it's the way the world works, after all. Is it morally wrong to get advantage in this earth and, and collect the things that you need? Of course not. Is it unlawful? No, not at all. But here's the point that Jesus is making right here. Where your treasure is, your heart is as well. That is the point. What does he mean by that? Well, let's take a look at verse 24. See how they're all starting to amplify each other. And we're going to skip over verse 22 and 23 and get to 24, where Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And the word translated as wealth there in English is mammon or mamona in Greek. And mammon is not just about money. Mammon is not just about wealth. I know we've said this several times, but Mammonas is actually the name of the Canaanite goddess of avarice and greed and, the idea, and wealth. But the idea here is, is that it moves from a, uh, just having wealth to a condition of the heart that needs and wants more 
and now has become defined by what has been piled up in a person's life. In other words, it has changed the character of the person to desire so deeply the things of the world, the treasures on earth. And that is the metaphor that Jesus is using here. When he tells the rich young man, the rich, rich rented lips, rich young ruler who comes to him and says, what must I do to obtain eternal life? And ultimately tells him, sell everything. And we think that's because he's rich and he's going to sell all his possessions, but that's not the sum total of what Jesus is talking about. For him, yes, those material possessions and his status in society were what he was clinging to for support, but it has to do with the mindset behind that more deeply. Jesus is saying you have to be willing to jettison everything you think you know and everything that you have come to rely on that is not God, that is not the power greater than yourself. If all your reliance is on yourself and what you can produce and what you can do, now your heart is with treasures on earth. And that is disallowing you from experiencing the kind of connection that kingdom is all about. There are five terms, though, in this that we need to take a look at when we, when we move on to the next one, which is at verse 24. I'm sorry, verse 22. Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, <laughs> how great is that darkness? What is Jesus talking about here? You know, the heart is the deepest part of us. That's the idea of Laba in Aramaic. It is the part of us that is the best part. It's the pith. It's the marrow. It, it's, it's everything that, that is in intelligent and everything that is emotional and everything that, that is the seed of our desire. And so that heart, what it's going after, is so important. And of course, we're going to think that heaven is still the heaven of the afterlife, and that's not what Jesus is talking about. Heaven is a euphemism for God himself. And so when we are storing up treasures in heaven, we are storing up treasures in God himself, in the unity, in the identification, right here and right now, without which there is no sense of kingdom. We are shelved back out. And when this occurs, when we are starting to understand the concepts that Jesus is talking about, that's where the clear eye comes in. This is where Jesus is leading us. These are how all these verses fit together. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. If your eye is bad, full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And there's five terms that we need to take a look at here in Aramaic because we can't really understand the fullness of what Jesus is talking about until we put it back into an Aramaic context. And the first one is obviously I. The word in Aramaic is aina. But aina means more than just the physical eye. Aina means to look. It means the view or the viewpoint that we have. It's an opinion that we form. It can also mean appearance. It can even mean face in some contexts. Like shem, which we translate as name, really means the surface of something that expresses an inner essence. It's the out outward appearance of something that expresses an inner essence. Aina is, in many ways, the same way. It's revealing the inner essence. 
It is that mindset. It is that worldview. So I means a lot more than that. If the I is clear, the word there in Aramaic, peshita, which means good, it can mean sound, it can mean healthy, unclouded, single. You'll see it translated some of those ways in different English versions. It can also mean sincere, straightforward, true, simple. The oldest dated biblical manuscript that we have in existence is uh, dated to 484 CE, AD, and it's Aramaic, and it's called the Peshitta. It's in an Aramaic dialect called Syriac. They named it, this book, the Peshitta, because they believe that this is the sincere and straightforward and true rendering of the scriptures. Peshitta, the Peshitta Aina. In, in Greek, it's haplus, which means, interestingly, folded together, unified, or single. All of this for the I, which is the opinion, the viewpoint, the mindset, the worldview. Is it folded together? Is it integrated? Is it single, simple, true, straightforward, right? Unclouded, healthy, single. All of these things. We're starting to sound like shalom here, which is the greatest amount of all of those good things that you can have. That's why it's a salutation. Shalom, health and wealth and fulfillment to you. Shalom on the way out the door. I leave you with health and wealth and fulfillment. And so Peshitta, same type of idea here. And so if we put that together and we retranslate that first line, the Aina Peshitta, the, the, if your eye is clear, if it's Aina Peshitta, then your inner essence, your perception of life is unified, integrated, clear, And if that is true, then your whole body and all the experience that you have in life will be full of light. Okay, now light, is that just light as in sunlight? Well, light here, nura in Aramaic, also means clarity, but it can mean intelligence. It can mean enlightenment, philosophically, mentally, intellectually, spiritually. It also can mean order, and it can mean harmony. So now... If your inner essence, if your perception of light is unified, integrated, clear, then your whole body and all your experience will be full of clarity, intelligence, enlightenment, order, harmony. You see where Jesus is going with this? The next word, bad, if your ayina is bad, ayina bisha now, and we've talked about bisha before, literally means unripe. Not fit, not ready for prime time, right? Not mature, disconnected. So Aina Bisha then is that the inner, the essence, the inner essence, your inner essence, your perception is disconnected. It's not fit. And when that happens, then your whole body is in darkness. What does darkness mean beyond just the absence of light? Well, darkness, Heshuka, means chaos, chaotic means curved as opposed to straight and ordered. It is swirling energies like wind and water as opposed to the straight rays of the sun. It can mean veiled, covered over, all of these things. So if your eye is bisha, ayina bisha, if your essence and perception is disconnected, not yet ready to connect with other people, then your whole body is chaotic. Your whole experience of life is swirling, veiled, covered over. 
not clear, not unified, not ordered, not in harmony. Now, there's also Jewish idioms that have to do with the good eye and the bad eye. The good eye meant that someone was generous. If you had a good eye, you were a generous person. If you had a bad eye, you were a miser and a stingy person. And of course, the rabbis, being who the rabbis were, they had to codify all this stuff. And so they said a good eye actually related to somebody who gave a 40th of their proceeds, which was about 3% of, of what you would give. That was a good eye. If you had a middling eye, <laughs> then you gave a 50th, and that was about 2%. And if you had a bad eye, Aina Bisha, then you only gave 60, a 60th percent, a 60th of your earnings, which was like 1.5% or something like that. They actually had all this codified out, which of course turned everything back into a tax, right? As soon as you put a number to something, it's no longer a gift. It's a task, a tax or an investment. And these are the things that Jesus is relentlessly trying to get us away from. Beyond this idea of just an idiom of generous or miserly, Aina Peshita, Aina Bisha is also pointing to your whole worldview, of course, and your attitude. And that last line, does that make any sense to you in English? If the light that is in you is darkness, how can the light that is in you be darkness? If the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? That doesn't really make much sense in English. But if we translate it back into what we know about light and dark now, if our understanding of life, if our understanding of relationship is disconnected or chaotic, how great is that darkness that we will experience? We're not just talking about light and dark. We're talking about whether we see life basically as chaotic and disconnected because we're not yet ready to see the unity of everything or whether we can see it as connected. And that changes our experience of life, our maturity, our ability, the amount of time we're willing to spend practicing being in God's presence will change the experience in the way that we look at light, life. And that disconnection, that chaos is telegraphed through our eyes. Remember the scene, the eyes are the windows to the soul? You know, think about it. If we are experiencing that chaotic environment, if we are experiencing that disconnection, unless you're the best actor or poker player in the world, that's being telegraphed through your eyes. Think about people that you meet that have eyes that can't hold eye contact, that can't look directly into your eye, that are darting away, that are downcast or clouded over, unfocused. Some people say hooded, you know? It's just, you can tell they're not really there. This idea of the eye being bisha, the eye being heshuka, bad, dark, unripe, unclear, hiding something, veiled, this idea of not kingdom. We've all experienced that both in others that we're trying to communicate with, and I know you've experienced it yourself. When you realize you're not projecting through your eyes anymore because something is now between you and the other person. If we're not full of nura, if we're not full of clarity and order ourselves, if we're not following just one master, if we are conflicted, if our heart is after treasures that are not 
based in heaven, in unity, in God, then we are experiencing the chaos of Heshuka, that conflict of interest, and we're trying to serve two masters. The heart is still after treasures on earth, never fulfilled, and the reward that we get, we have in full. We don't move any further. All of Jesus' sayings in in chapter 6 are coming together at this point right here, trying to get us to understand how it is that we're living, where it is that we place our reliance, where we look to for support, makes all the difference in our experience and makes all the difference how we relate to others and how we come across to others in ways that we probably don't even understand. Do you ever, ever, anybody play uh, Indian poker here? You know, you have so many cards down, so many cards up, and the last card you lick and you stick on your forehead and you don't look at it. So everybody else can see your last card and you can see everybody else's last card, but you don't know what you're holding and you got to bet that way. That's kind of the way we go through life. We're telegraphing things. We don't even realize they're emblazoned on our forehead and everybody can see them. And we think we're so suave, right? But they see our card. When we are feeling that chaos, when we're feeling Heshuka within, believe me, people are aware of it, just as you are aware of it in others. How do we know if we're conflicted? How do we know if we're living this conflict of interest? How do we know if we are not really connected in Nura, but are living in darkness with this bad eye? First of all, I want to let you know that it's not a permanent condition. We move in and out of Nura and Heshuka, you know, on a moment-by-moment basis sometimes, on a daily basis sometimes. Don't you have days where you feel like you're really full of light, you know? You can look right into people's eyes and you feel really good. And then the next day, not so much. You just want to put the covers back over your head and you don't really want to meet anybody. And if you do, you keep it short, you don't give eye contact and you move on, you know? We move in and out of this. It is not a permanent condition. We don't just flip a switch and we're just going to be full of light for the rest of our lives. Actually, it's a moment-by-moment choice that we make. Every moment is a choice. That's how you know you're in a moment. If you got a choice, you're in a moment. Moments are choices. Choices are moments. And if your choice is to connect, if your choice is to be full of light, then what we're doing is we're just trying to string enough of those moments together to get to 51%. 51% changes our character. 51% changes our mailing address. Can we get to that? Because once you do and your character is fundamentally changed, you are spending more time in the light than you are in the darkness. You aren't going to stay there at 51. That's where the scale goes exponential. But that's the way it's experienced. Not as a one-time event that turns us on or off, but a choice every moment. How do you know? Check your eye contact. Can you look straight into someone's eye and not have to look away? Can you hold on to that kind of connection with another person where you know that you're opening up the window to your soul and they can see in there and that's okay with you? Have you ever met somebody and and they just present in such a way that you instantly feel comfortable? I mean, they stand right square to you. Their body language is open. Even their feet are kind of splayed outward, not pigeon-toed. You know, they're not sideways. They're not arms folded. They're just open. 
their, their face is open. They're looking straight into your eyes. Maybe there's a smile there, but even if not, they're just accessible and they're there and they know that they're seeing you. And when you look into their eyes, you're not just seeing the back of their head. You're actually seeing something going on looking back at you. That's how you know if you are present in the moment. Can you do that or not? Do you want to know how you're doing at any given moment? Check your eye contact. Check your ability to just be present. Because as soon as you're hurt, as soon as you're triggered again, as soon as you get angry or resentful, first thing you lose is your eye contact, don't you? You can no longer look at that person right in the eye. You have to kind of hide what it is that's going on inside. And how quickly can you recover from that is another way of looking at your growth spiritually. Come back to where you can just look straight in a person's eyes. Check your stress level. Check your anxiety level. You know, we all say that we trust God, probably, most of us. Right? But if your stress is up, how can you say that you really trust God or anything? Anxiety, stress, and trust are inversely proportional. As one goes up, the other goes down. If you're saying that you trust God and you're living in stress and anxiety, then the trust is not really there. The neura is not really there. If you're living in drama and chaos, if you feel weird, bored maybe, or meaningless, if there isn't some kind of drama going on, some kind of crisis going on, then you have gotten used to Heshuka. You've gotten used to darkness. And that's what really animates you more than the light. Check the quality of your relationships. Do they feel like coming home when you connect with a person? Or do you still feel on guard? Do you still feel that you have to, I don't know, prove something, hide something, project something? Can you just exhale and just come home? Are your relationships a quiet corner in your life? Or are they more noise, more chaos, more disorder? In the sixth beatitude, Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. How is it that we see God? Now, it really means the same as their hearts treasure heaven. That's all it is. Those who are pure in heart, those who are unconflicted, are not living this conflict of interest we're talking about, are those who have learned to treasure the things of heaven the unity, the connection over the material things of earth. That makes all the difference in the world. They have become defined by love of unity, love of connection with each other, no conflict of interest, ayina peshita. And what does this good eye, this pure heart, look like? I want to read you a short story a little story from the Desert Fathers. This is what we've been studying for the last few months with uh, the book study. But this one comes from Thomas Merton's book, The Wisdom of the Desert. But it's an ancient story going back probably 1,700 years. Abbot Anastasius had a book written on very fine parchment, which was worth 18 pence. And it had in it both the Old and New Testaments in full. Once a certain brother came to visit him and seeing the book made off with it. So that day when Abbot Anastasius went to read his book and found that it was gone, he realized that the brother had taken it. But he did not send after him to inquire about it for fear that the brother might add perjury to theft. <laughs> Don't you love that? 
<laughs> he might lie about it. Well, the brother went down into the nearby city in order to sell the book. <clears throat> and the price he asked was 16 pence. The buyer said, give me the book that I might find out whether it is worth that much. And with that, the buyer took the book to the holy Anastasius and said, Father, take a look at this book, please, and tell me whether you think that I ought to buy it for 16 pence. Is it worth that much? Abbot Anastasius said, yes, it is a fine book. It is worth that much. So the buyer went back to the brother and said, here is your money. I showed the book to Abbot Anastasius, and he said, it is a fine book and is worth at least 16 pence. But the brother asked, was that all he said? <laughs> was that all he said? Did he make any other remarks? No, said the buyer. He did not say another word. Well, said the brother, I have changed my mind, and I don't want to sell this book after all. Then he hastened to Abbot Anastasius and begged him with tears to take back his book. But the abbot would not accept it, saying, Go in peace, brother. I make you a present of it. But the brother said, If you do not take it back, I shall never have any peace. And after that, the brother dwelt with Abbot Anastasius for the rest of his life. Now, I don't know how that sounds to you. But this is the heart of a man who is completely unconflicted, right? Completely unoffended by the unfairness of what happened. He's not concerned about fairness. His only concern is for the heart of the thief who took his book. That's his only concern. Everything else is superfluous. How many of us would react that way? If you had something of value taken from you, how many of us could react that way? He has absolutely no need to justify himself or to get justice from the one who wronged him, to punish him, to correct him. Fairness, not an issue. There is no conflict within him. He knows exactly what he's going to do, and he does it, but he does it with pleasure. He does it with the sense that everything is right with the world. Everything focused only on the welfare of the thief and all of his choices follow that. I love that story. Could we find a way to be so unconflicted that our focus is always on the other and not on our needs or getting ourselves into a more advantageous set of circumstances? Can we be that focused in the moment? You know, a few years ago, we had a, this was when we were still over here, we had an event at night, um, and Marion worked with some friends to, to put it together, and they didn't have a sound man, so I said, okay, I'll come and run sound, and so I, I showed up, and I, I did my sound thing, I did what Brandon does every Sunday, and I just set up the sound, they had a, a single male worship leader, just acoustic guitar and vocal, so I set up his mics and got his guitar all done, and and uh, was sound checking him, and he had a really beautiful guitar. So I just remarked, "Great guitar!" Had all this inlay, and you know, just a really nice looking instrument. And he thanked me, and he said, "Well, do you play?" And I said, "Yeah, and I play acoustic guitar here." And he, and he, he acknowledged it, and then we continued work. And I, the next thing, there was a thing welled up in me. I said, "Well, you know, I'm the lead teaching pastor here too." You know, that was. It was amazing that that came up because he only saw me as the sound guy who also played guitar. And it's like, oh, but I'm the pastor here too. You know, that need to justify. Why would I have to say that to him? What difference did it make to him? He was just there to play. 
I was just there to make him sound as good as he could and to be as comfortable as he could possibly be while he was playing. He didn't need to know anything beyond that. That was just me. Now, that was a good enough day for me that I was able to stop myself before I said anything and just take a breath and move on and be the sound guy. Can't say it's always that way. But this is the conflict that we feel within us, isn't it? Where we have this conflict where we're trying to justify ourselves and project, be a receiver of faces and, and put it out there so that we can be seen by others as being the step above. And Jesus is back there saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, you do that and you got your reward in full. Nothing else connects. I had a much better time just being the sound guy and being a servant to this young player than I ever would have been trying to posture as the pastor of the church. But that's so hard for us, isn't it? It's so hard for us to make that corner, to refocus ourselves, just letting our heart treasure heaven, the connection of the moment, to build the awareness that allows us to be present enough to just do that, to have clear eyes focused on that connection, have our hearts and our minds folded together, unified, untroubled by any conflict of interest. Because what Jesus is telling us is that this is the only way to the Father. This is the only way to the experience of kingdom, truth that sets us free, life, abundant life. There's no better way to live than this. You might have heard me say, that if you could convince me beyond any shadow of a doubt, empirically or whatever, that there is no God, that this that we can see and taste and smell and measure with our instruments is all that exists, and at death we just wink out of existence and there is no more, if you could actually convince me of that, I wouldn't change a single thing about the way that I'm living my life. Because this is the best that I've ever felt. This is the least conflicted I've ever been. And this is the most fulfilled, meaningful, and purposeful that I've ever been in my life. Why would I change that? Because living this way is not a means to another end. Living this way is the end that we seek. It is the fullness of connection. And of course, you can't live this way and not realize that there is something more. But still... Can we get to the place where we realize that living as Jesus is trying to get us to live, seeing life as Jesus is trying to get us to see, is not the way to heaven. It's heaven itself. Right here, right now. Let's pray. Father, you are heaven. You are truth. Heaven is a person. Truth is a person. We think of it as being some kind of data point or some place outside of ourselves. But what you're showing us is that you are all these things that we seek. And you are here and you are now. And we don't have to wait. And we don't have to look outside this moment, the only place we can connect with you in order to experience everything that you have for us in this moment now. 
Help us to retain that somehow in our hearts, in our spirit. Help us to let that reorder the way that we think and the value system that we have so that we will value what you value and we will make our choices accordingly so that we can just fall into our moments and experience them with the same abandon that you experience them. Thank you for these teachings, Lord. Thank you for everything that you gift us so that we can find our way through this. And thank you for the empowerment, the breath of your spirit that moves us along as long as we turn and face and allow ourselves to be moved by you. So take us where you'd like us to go, Father. We give you permission, and we will try to stay out of our own way as we do this day by day, step by step. And thank for your love and your constancy, Father. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.